Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype right to the heart of the big issues of the day. This week, we're bringing you a very special programme about nature-based solutions, or NBSs, courtesy of a compelling report with a truly global scope from the UBS Optimus Foundation in APAC and key contributions from project partners Mana Impact and Envirostrat. MBSs are a spectrum of ecosystem-related approaches to help conserve, manage or restore nature. The report demonstrates how MBSs can be better understood and employed to address global environmental and biodiversity challenges. Ahead today, we'll hear from the leadership teams and some of the key report contributors from those various stakeholders. For UBS and its philanthropy clients who are interested in biodiversity, this type of research helps investors identify good quality NBS projects. The need to bridge the nature funding gap of more than 800 billion US dollars per year to reverse the decline in biodiversity by 2030 is pretty well understood. But that's not the only reason why this programme is timely. It's also being broadcast on Monocle 24 the week after the COP15 United Nations Biodiversity Conference wrapped up in Montreal. Ahead, we'll consider how all of this can help catalyse more high-quality NBS projects to address the urgency of the challenge. We'll get a real sense of the truly global net UBS has thrown over the topic by learning about some specific examples drawn from the many hundreds of projects around the world that are seeking to protect, manage and restore ecosystems and address the attendant societal challenges. We start with a big picture take on the theme first of all from Maya Zisvilla, CEO of the UBS Optimus Foundation. Maya Zisvilla, thanks for being with us today. Let's talk a little bit first of all about nature-based solutions. We're discussing biodiversity. We're talking about this new report that looks at the challenges presented, but also the opportunities here in terms of developing nature-based solutions projects. Tell us a bit, first of all, about why the Optimus Foundation supports and funds this kind of, of, of research. What are the objectives? Yes, thank you. Well, we actually wanted to provide information to individuals and organizations on not only what nature-based solutions or NBS are, but importantly, what is needed to develop high-quality NBS projects. And we're seeing growing investor interest, especially when it comes to carbon credits. So we really believe it's vital that as many people as possible understand what it takes to ensure these projects are developed with the right focus on communities and biodiversity right from the start. But maybe before I get into more detail, I'd like to explain to you a little bit more about the UBS Optimus Foundation so that you know a little bit where I'm coming from. So the UBS Optimus Foundation is an expert foundation pioneering innovative ways to tackle some of the world's most pressing social and environmental programs. We fund and support organizations with proven potential to make a big difference focusing on education, health, child protection, and the environment, and specifically focusing on nature-based solutions. And a little bit about our, our main pillars, one is around impact ventures, so really grants and social investments to early stage social enterprises, impact partnerships that allows us to scale those through governments, collectives and blended finance, and finally impact transparency, so making sure that we're measuring impact, benchmarking it and communicating it transparently. As mentioned in the report, we're facing twin crisis of climate change and biodiversity loss. This poses a real risk to the most vulnerable members of society, such as children, local communities in lower income countries that are reliant on nature, like smallholder farmers. That's why at Optimus, we focus on supporting nature-based solutions and how it can generate 
co-benefits for local communities, plus support biodiversity and effective climate mitigation outcomes. We actually support programs across the globe, many of which are nature-based solutions, focusing primarily on sustainable land use on the one hand and coastal and marine ecosystems on the other. Maybe just a few examples to bring it to life a little bit. One would be supporting community-based organizations focused on land conservation and restoration and livelihoods across Africa via the Africa Forest Carbon Catalyst Fund. Another example might be pooling philanthropic capital through collectives to drive change in coastal ecosystem conservation and blue carbon. Our climate collective is actually focused on mangroves, which have an incredible ability to capture and store carbon, as well as sustainable fisheries in Southeast Asia. And the last example I'll give is direct investments that we make into social enterprises like Fair Ventures that is focused on agroforestry in Indonesia with revenues for the local communities that are selling, for example, cacao or ginger, but also carbon credits from reforesting degraded lands. Yeah, it's a fascinating body of work that the Optimus Foundation is engaged with. And I think it was helpful to have that overview. And indeed, it might be helpful just to take a further step back. We're talking about nature-based solutions. But what is your definition, Maya, for for you and your colleagues in the foundation of what nature-based solutions actually are? Well, we believe is how we can harness and value nature to support the continuing growth of economies but at the same time benefit local communities and biodiversity and addressing the urgent climate mitigation needs. So especially since nature-based solutions has a strong focus on empowering local communities, this connects a lot with the work that Optimus Foundation has been supporting in education and health over the last two decades. A key cause for the destruction of nature is the need for individuals to find a source of income to provide for their families. So as highlighted in the report, nature-based solution projects really aim to generate livelihood income for these communities to help ensure that they actually see value in their natural environment, the environment in which they live. And furthermore, as the report highlights, engaging and empowering local communities during the early stages of the project development and during its implementation, for example, using citizen science will be critical to increase the likelihood of successfully achieving project outcomes in the longer term. Maya, tell us a little bit about about COP15. Presumably, again, this is another incredibly important forum. And as well as being, you know, a valuable talking shop, it also gets into definitions and so much of what the report outlines. And we know when talking about this area, it's so important to agree on frames of reference and definitions, isn't it? Is that one of the advantages of of events like COP15? Yeah, absolutely. And we think it's really crucial to have such important gatherings, bringing together stakeholders from government, private sector leaders, scientists, local communities and academics to focus on the importance of of biodiversity. So it's about that collaboration and bringing those stakeholders together. But it's, it's finding those partnerships across all those sectors to help stop and reverse the devastating loss of wildlife and animal uh, species. Um, actually, one quarter of plant and animal species are threatened with extinction, and over half of global GDP is dependent on nature. So I think it was, it was positive to see how COP15 addressed the need to bring 
the conversations on biodiversity and climate change closer together. And we as Optimist Foundation, we have that holistic view and we believe that that work is, is intertwined and those issues have to come together to identify a portfolio of solutions to a, a portfolio of problems because we see that climate change and biodiversity loss are intrinsically linked. And this alignment is important to make sure that we're working on integrated solutions and ensuring that on the ground projects are focused on, as I mentioned before, mitigation, biodiversity and community benefits. And you know, the target of 30 by 30 has been mentioned a lot, protecting at least 30% of the planet's land and oceans by 2030, and that's positive but we need to work together to find and support the right projects that deliver measurable outcomes towards that goal. And that's a little bit what the reports aims to, to focus on. And I think it would be great to see, you know, governments adopt a Paris-style agreement, so science-based, ambitious, comprehensive, that would be capable of driving immediate action to halt and reverse biodiversity loss. That would hopefully help galvanize the highest levels of support for biodiversity and encourage the use of nature-based solutions to address climate and biodiversity. This goes back to the report and the importance for all of us to understand what a high quality nature-based solutions project should look like and how we can ensure that we measure its outcomes. Maya Zisvilla. Well, let's take a bit of a deeper dive into the theme now in the company of Patty Chu, co-founder and MD at Manor Impact, the advisory firm focused on catalyzing a more regenerative and circular economy. And also Chiresila Stanku, partner and sustainability director in Envirostrat, based in New Zealand. Envirostrat's an end-to-end natural resource sector advisor and impact investment project developer. Well, thanks to you both for being with us. And let's start with some of the key ambitions of the report. Obviously, it must be hugely exciting to partner with your respective organisations, along with uh, bodies like the, the, the Optimus Foundation, to, to work on a really fascinating report like this. Patty, I'll come to you first of all. What were the objectives at the start and how were you seeking to collaborate, to work together, to deliver them? So the main objective of the report was essentially to be able to catalyze and also discover what were the elements of, you know, high quality nature-based solutions in in Asia and, you know, how could we create more? Because traditionally conservation and restoration projects have been mainly funded through philanthropists, foundations. And I think we all know that we need a lot more trillions of dollars to, to protect and, and restore uh, nature. And so nature-based solutions are, you know, one of the, the channels to do so. So I think for us was helping through this report really tease out what are the, you know, what are the key elements, what are the key challenges, where are the opportunities uh, for investors, you know, the private sector to understand what are the benefits and, and also how they can be involved. Sarisla, just tell us a little bit about your take in terms of the ambitions here and how you were able to realise them. Because I think one thing that's really interesting about Envirostrat specifically is how it brings together so many different interdisciplinary ideas with the objective of delivering, you know, these impact focused and sustainable projects, because there's applied science, economics, there's public policy, legal, and of course, commercial angles as well. Is that one of the great, the great challenges to bind all these things together and ensure that 
an equally wide community of stakeholders are furnished with the kinds of solutions that they really need? Mm. Thank you, Tom. This is really a, a very good question. And also taking it back to what our uh, objective, if you want, was with the report. It really is this overarching interest in nature-based solutions and what they can do for us as people and the needs that we have, but also in terms of solutions to biodiversity. And like you said, what we we knew before, and I'm, I'm hoping that with this report, we only shine you know, a more of a torch on on some details is the fact that successful nature-based solutions is not just about biophysical or technical knowledge uh, and ecological knowledge. You actually truly have to bring a package of skills, uh, roles, partners to in fact be able to design, implement and really achieve and deliver outcomes for nature-based solutions. So I'm hoping and you know our teams working on this report, we're really hoping that what we are doing is to advance the knowledge in this space. The report you know contributes to other knowledge areas and reports that are coming out, but collectively what we are all trying to do is really to advance the practice. And I'm hoping that the way that the report um, and the examples captured in the report uh, will be doing exactly that. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's really important. And I wanted to ask both of you actually a little bit about that specificity. Obviously, the report focuses on a number of specific projects, and this helps to aid understanding not just of best practice in terms of the conception, the design, the execution of these projects, but also the metrics. And I, I sort of alluded to this earlier, agreeing on standardization and things that make it comprehensible and hopefully replicable around the world. Patty, I'll ask you, first of all, is that one of the key points, do you think, that the report gets into specifics and actually we need to go beyond talking about big challenges and the big questions and get into the detail because that's what drives real change? Definitely. And I think that you know, when we started working on this report, that was something that we also faced as a challenge because I think conceptually, when we talk about high quality, you know, I think we all have, you know, our interpretation of it. And there are no current standards per se of what high quality means. So yeah, the report, you know, reviews like 500 different projects and you know, it was the task of, yeah, the Envirostrat team and MANA team to kind of like come up with some of these like key qualities and also test these qualities through the various experts, you know, that we interviewed throughout the process, as well as like validating it through the various different sort of existing frameworks, but not exactly standards, as you said. And I think that kind of for you know, the discussions at COP15, I think that's that's something also really key, I think, to, to set sort of like targets and clearer standards. Sarasla, just to bring you in here, again, that point about the specificity, which I think Patty's alluded to there, is important. I guess another one of the kind of key takeaways that struck me as interesting was this idea that, of course, there's a necessity to drive uh, much more finance into these areas. But it's not just about mm. spending. It's also about building knowledge. And I know this is something, of course, that Envirostrat is really passionate and, and engaged with, building the knowledge bases within those demographics, organisations, who we are going to task with delivering change. We need to not just throw money at the problem, but to build that knowledge base. That's also a, another striking takeaway, right? Absolutely. And in relation to that is really the at the core of it is the fact that nature-based solutions, by and large, are solutions that provide multiple benefits 
multiple benefits to people, but also to biodiversity. Therefore, it's a broad knowledge base, if you want, that we work with. And of course, building that knowledge and then ensuring that that knowledge is being deployed and applied in the right way and taken up by communities, because we know that many of these projects, the genesis of them, the ideas of them, they're actually emerging often bottom up from communities that are faced with, uh, with challenges where biodiversity is being lost and so on. So we, we're focusing on that. And I think, you know, in terms of the report, if there is one overarching, you know, and reassuring finding in some ways, or at least uh, a point of the report, is this aspect of multiple benefits that uh, nature-based solutions provide. And the fact that they really, quite often, they, they deliver value for money. So when we are looking at nature-based solutions and the fact that we are in this situation where we have to to match, if you want, to bridge the needs of the communities with the interest of investors, recognizing that investors are seeking impact. They want to see results and they want to see impact in the community, but they also want to see you know, capital well spent that generate a return. So with this report, we're trying to kind of straddle these different worlds of you know, understanding what it means, alternative economic opportunities, you know, looking at livelihoods, looking at revenue models and combining all of this to build this, uh, this knowledge base that is needed on the side of uh, those that spend the capital as much as the uh, community groups and project developers, those that need the capital. Whether it's a, a call to action or just a, a kind of an overarching takeaway, what would you hope that engaged listeners, readers, students of this area would take away from, from the report? What, what do you hope its impact, its enduring impact might be? I think I would, I would expand on, on that. I would say, first of all, we're seeking with this type of uh, knowledge and solutions, you know, to, to find ways to bring resources into protecting and conserving nature for the benefit of us all. And therefore, if we think about investment and businesses as models to meet needs, there is definitely with nature-based solutions, we see that the potential is there, but there are many, many areas of an ecosystems where we haven't seen yet nature-based solutions at scale, but the potential is great. And I'll pick up, for example, one of the areas that I feel really passionate about and we cover in report as well, which is around water. So we talk a lot about carbon sequestration as um, you know, the, the means whereby the focus that we have these days as part of climate mitigation. But in fact, for us as humanity, climate adaptation is also a large in livelihoods. It's a large agenda, if you want. And water within that, uh, clean water, access to water, dealing with droughts, managing floods and so on. It's um, an area full of opportunity because we know that the needs are there and we have plenty of technical knowledge. So, you know, if there is a call to action in all of this is that we do need, you know, there is plenty of knowledge as it is. And a report like this extends on the knowledge that is available for partnerships to be formed and to, you know, to enable more projects to happen in real life. So we really need, we need to see more projects that are actually taken from their, you know, small scale stage to, you know, and replicated and achieve large scale. And with that, really resolving solutions at scale. Patty Chu and Teresa Lestanku, thanks both for being with us. Well, just before we go, I'd like to talk about a specific example from the report, a little case study, if you will. Patty, perhaps you could talk us through this. 
Well, one of my favorites, and also I guess one of the ones that I'm more familiar with, it's in Cambodia. This project is managed by the Wildlife Conservation Society, WCS. And so this is a 500,000 hectare rainforest, tropical rainforest, between the borders of Thailand and Laos. So it's, it's quite remote. And because of that remoteness, you know, the communities are quite poor. And so it, that also leads to unsustainable hunting, logging, and agriculture. And so the impetus was, you know, how do we stop this deforestation? How can we conserve this natural ecosystem? But understand that, you know, the rationale is that the communities also need livelihoods. So this project is quite interesting in the sense that it has been able to generate about like 630,000 tons of carbon credits and also uh, reduce and avoided deforestation and supported the, the communities increase their income and also allowed their uh, one of the native species from, from Cambodia, which is also their national bird, uh, the giant ibis come back. And uh, in addition to that, they have sort of stacked up an enterprise, a sustainable organic rice enterprise called Ibis Rice, which allows, yeah, the farmers to grow and farmers have to commit to use, you know, zero pesticides and no hunting and protect the landscape and its species and, yeah, revitalize the ecosystem while also, yeah, getting compensated for it. So that's one of, I think, one of the uh, really interesting projects that I find. Patty Chu, bringing us to the end of this special edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle 24. For more, head to ubs.com now and search Optimus Foundation. You can listen again and explore more at monocle.com. That's where you can join the club by subscribing to Monocle magazine. You can follow this program too, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to know more about how UBS can help you, head to UBS.com. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening. Listener.